Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Until recently, the COVID-19 vaccines had not been tested on kids. New clinical trials are changing that. With the pandemic, a lot of things feel out of our control. So to be part of that process of making the vaccine available for kids, I thought was really, really cool. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll hear from two sisters in Massachusetts who are in a vaccine trial for children. Plus, NASA plans to put the first woman on the moon by 2024. I wouldn't want to be the first person just for me. It would be really to pay homage to these other women that came before me and to continue to celebrate them and to continue to inspire all of those in the next generation. And is it time to retreat from the Cape Cod coast? The worst case scenarios right now for sea level rise by the end of this century is six feet, right? Six to eight feet by 2100. That is literally, to my mind, unimaginable. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. The U.S. now expects to have enough COVID-19 vaccines for adults by the end of May. But there are millions more people who can't get the vaccine. Children. That's because, until recently, none of the vaccines have been clinically tested for kids under 16. Those trials are now underway around the country. And GBH Radio's Liz Nieslaus spoke with two young trial subjects at a site in Worcester, Massachusetts. Photos capture evidence of their first COVID vaccine. Each displays her Band-Aid like a badge of honor. Zoe Campbell is 15 years old, and her sister Esme is 12. They're helping answer the question, is the COVID vaccine safe for children? Zoe says she feels like she's a part of history. The vaccine has been something we've been looking forward to since last year. And with the pandemic, a lot of things feel out of our control. So to be part of That process of making the vaccine available for kids, I thought was really, really cool. At first, younger sister Esme worried a bit, but she was reassured by friends. Some of them have like done similar things, of course, not gotten the vaccine yet, but um, like getting their blood drawn and stuff. And that also helps me because I was kind of scared of getting my blood drawn. I mean, it was pretty exciting to enter the trial because I felt like I was really doing something or contributing at least. There are among 70 Massachusetts children participating in the nationwide test of Moderna's COVID vaccine for ages 12 to 17. It's a group that's had relatively low rates of infection, and the CDC calls fatal cases rare, but cases can be severe, and they also spread the virus. Dr. Catherine Lazuriaga oversees the trials taking place at UMass Medical School in Worcester. We think it's important to uh, get data that support the use of vaccination in children and teens for the individual benefit, um, potential individual benefit of the child. The other reason is public health. Children must be told the risks and benefits of the trial and what they'll need to do, part of informed consent that's supposed to occur in any trial. 
But when it comes to trials with children, there's a need to make sure they're really committed and not being pressured to join. Lazuriaga also says something as mundane as scheduling can make it more challenging to do trials with teens. I'm just amazed at the teens that have stepped up to participate in this study. They are just incredibly committed. There's a large altruistic component to doing what they're doing. So they're very driven. Zoe and Esme's parents are both doctors, both vaccinated. With millions of adults already vaccinated, their mom, Dr. Lucy Chi, says she felt very safe having her children participate. I definitely was eager to sign them up, but of course wanted to check in with them that they were agreeable to it, that they wanted to do it, and you know, ultimately it was their choice whether they wanted to do it or not. And what they agree to is more than just two shots. There are long visits, virtual check-ins, and daily e-diaries to be filled out. As with prior COVID vaccine trials, the girls don't know whether they got the actual vaccine or a placebo. Esme says it's a big topic at home. Both of our arms got really sore. Um, mine's not sore anymore, but I was hoping that was because I got the vaccine, but of course that happens even if you get the placebo. I'm hopeful that my kids actually got the real dose, of course, but I really, you know, hope all kids can get the dose and can really, you know, have their childhoods and live their lives more normally again. The Moderna trial follows teens for 13 months. But like current COVID vaccines, if there's enough early positive data, a vaccine for teens could come by late summer. Vaccine testing next moves to children under 12 and as young as six months. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Liz Nieslaus. Now to Providence, Rhode Island, where a health clinic in one of its poorest neighborhoods is on a mission. The clinic is trying to vaccinate Providence's hardest hit areas against COVID-19. But hundreds of people from more affluent communities have already signed up for the shots. Lynn Arditi from The Public's Radio has the story. In a price-right shopping plaza in one of the city's poorest neighborhoods, the regulars at this storefront clinic are mostly immigrants who speak Spanish, Portuguese, and Creole. They work cleaning offices, washing cars, and filleting fish in grocery stores. Locals call it Clinica Esperanza, or Hope Clinic. Dr. Annie DeGroot is the nonprofit clinic's volunteer medical director. She says about one in four of their patients has tested positive for the coronavirus. A lot of our patients have been waiting for the vaccine and dying before they got the vaccine. So we kind of would like to be able to vaccinate our population. But recently, a new clientele has been showing up to be vaccinated. Well, they're all white and they were driving up in BMWs and, you know, Mercedes and SUVs and they were wearing mink coats. More than 70 percent of the people vaccinated at the clinic over a week in mid-February were seniors from outside of Providence. It's Barrington, it's uh, Bristol, it's Westerly, it's South Kingston, North Kingston. That's Lauren Green, the associate clinical director. They're coming from all over Rhode Island. State health officials say the influx is because a local community organization shared the clinic's registration link with its members, who then shared it with other people outside the community. Those are people who are in affluent neighborhood who have access to computer, have access to technology, and can easily get on these platforms and book those spaces. That's Christopher Abulame. He serves on a vaccine advisory committee to the state health department and is Governor McKee's new deputy chief of staff. 
He says the problem of access is the same for people trying to sign up for a vaccine at their local CVS. By the time it gets to the minority community, the vaccine is already booked up. Latinos make up 17% of Rhode Island's population and 30% of COVID-19 cases, but they have received just 9% of the state's vaccine. Black people make up 6% of the state's population and 8% of the cases, but so far, they've received just 4% of the vaccine. Similar disparities are showing up across the country, and experts say the reasons are as deeply rooted as the inequities in America's health care system. And those inequities are playing out as Rhode Islanders scour the Internet for a vaccine in short supply. Doris De Los Santos, a former board chair of Clinica Esperanza, says the vaccine registration system needs to change. It is the responsibility of government to set systems right to serve the population across the board, but more so the disadvantage. Rhode Island health officials say plans are underway to target more vaccines to the state's hardest hit zip codes, where many of the state's Black and Latino residents live. That's what they've been doing in Central Falls. And they say they're working with vaccinators to discourage people from sharing registration links with those outside the target communities, as happened with Clinica Esperanza. On a recent Monday afternoon at the clinic, Paul Higgins jokes with a Latina healthcare worker as he rolls up his sleeve for a shot. Higgins is 67 and lives in Warwick. He recently retired from a career in logistics. He says his wife was searching for appointments online when she finally found an opening. She clicked on one. The first one she clicked on happened to be here, and that's how we ended up coming here. Joseph Rose is up next. He's 66 and lives in Portsmouth. He owns a real estate company in Newport. Most people that want the vaccine will go wherever you have to go, unless you can't, you know, if you don't have transportation. Lack of transportation to mass vaccination sites like the one in downtown Providence is a big reason why Clinica Esperanza is here. And the staff was planning to use the 400 vaccine doses it gets each week for people in these hard-hit communities. That came as a surprise to Rose, the businessman from Portsmouth. I I wouldn't have come here then if I thought it was, that was a concern. I didn't know anything about that. On his way out the door, he wonders aloud whether or not he should return to the clinic for a second shot. But his appointment is already booked. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lynnar Diddy. Once a clinician opens a Moderna or Pfizer COVID vaccine vial, there are just six hours before the doses inside expire. With Johnson & Johnson, it's only two hours unless the vaccine is refrigerated. So to avoid wasting any doses, clinics need to make sure the number of patients they have lines up with the number of vials they open. As WBUR's Angus Chen reports, that's not always so easy. Seated at the edge of the Reggie Lewis Center's indoor track-turned-mass vaccination site, Emily Rice barely seems to notice the hundreds of people getting inoculated. She's focused on the tiny vial and syringe she's holding in her fingers. 0.3 mLs of this Pfizer COVID vaccine. Rice is a vaccine preparer for CIC Health, which operates a mass vaccination site at Reggie Lewis. All day, she painstakingly fills syringes with the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine. Each vial is supposed to contain five doses, but most actually have one or two extras. Just from this vial, I'm on number seven. Yeah. yeah, seven is the max, and it's hard to get that. That leaves clinic managers with a tricky math problem. 
On any given day, the Reggie Lewis Center can administer up to 1,200 vaccinations. If every vial contains only five doses, then the clinic would need 240 vials to handle all those people. But with extra doses in many vials, 240 vials would leave hundreds of unused doses at the end of the day, and clinicians scrambling to find arms to put them in before they expire. And that's something that I am super anal about, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> that's not happening. That's Chris Kaufman. He's the lead vaccine coordinator at CIC Health, which runs three mass vaccination sites. We take this very, very seriously. I, t- I treat every single dose as um, liquid gold. Kaufman's job is to make sure that the number of doses that health workers prepare closely matches the number of patients on any given day. I mean, it sounds like just simple multiplication, but once you're actually drawing up 4,000 syringes a day, it's a formidable task. At each CIC-run site, two vaccine coordinators scribble calculations on sheets of paper, periodically checking to see if the number of doses extracted matches the number of people vaccinated over the course of the day. Each checks the other's work. If everything goes according to plan, there should be no more than one open vial with six doses left at the end of the day. Those will go into the arms of clinic staff and volunteers who haven't been vaccinated yet. A version of this process goes on in every vaccination clinic, but not all of them are able to have a staff dedicated to it. This is the most stressful part. <laughs> You're not kidding. The rest of the clinic's easy. It's the, it's the darn doses, the way these vials are made. That's Dr. Sheena Sharma. She runs a community health clinic in Webster. On the weekends, she and a small brigade of volunteers administer hundreds of COVID-19 vaccinations. But she doesn't have the same resources that CIC Health does, so she's the one running around counting doses and patients. 38. The one she's talking about is a patient who showed up but couldn't get the vaccine because she received a different shot too recently. To make sure the clinic doesn't end up with too many open vials, Sharma has to keep this running count of last-minute cancellations and extra doses in her head, almost like she was counting cards at a blackjack table. You know, we're going to be off, but we can't tell how much. Gotcha. It's really and, hard to um, tell. To keep vaccines from going bad, Sharma and other volunteers are calling up patients who are eligible but didn't get an appointment. If they're free, then they'll come and try to snag an extra dose from the last vial of the day. One of those people is Mary Warshell, a teacher and a childcare worker in Webster. She's also a friend of one of the doctors volunteering at the clinic. When Rochelle got the call about getting one of the extra doses, she says she jumped in her car. I feel good right now. I am excited. I'm actually like I might have won the lottery. (laughs) It's been a good day. (laughs) And at the end of the day, not a single dose of the Webster Clinic was wasted. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Angus Chen. the break, an astronaut from Maine talks about her shot at being the first woman to walk on the moon. Plus, as climate change damages the shoreline of Cape Cod, people are asking, is it time to move inland? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. 
Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. The first woman could walk on the moon in the not-so-distant future. 2024 is the goal of a NASA program called Artemis to return to the lunar surface. Half the team is made up of women, and today we have one of the members joining us. Astronaut Jessica Meir was born and raised in Caribou, Maine. Jessica, welcome to Next. Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be speaking with you today. Well, it's not so often that you get to speak with an astronaut, so I'm very excited about that. And I'm just wondering, could you share with us, did you always want to be an astronaut? Yes, absolutely. My mom tells me from the time I was five years old, I was saying that I wanted to be an astronaut. And I don't actually remember back quite that far, but I do remember in first grade up in Caribou when our teacher asked us to draw a picture of what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I remember drawing an astronaut standing on the surface of the moon next to the American flag in a spacesuit, that kind of iconic image we have from Apollo. And I never stopped saying it after that. That's amazing because so many so many people struggle to figure out what they want to do when they grow up, quote unquote. But you just knew. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I used to think, well, people would always tell me, oh, you're so lucky. You had this thing that you wanted to do and you know exactly what it is. And I wish I had that. I wish I knew. But I was always kind of secretly thinking, yeah, well, what if it doesn't happen? There's such a small chance of it happening. Will I ever actually be content or satisfied in my life if I don't get that? And it probably won't happen. So I think I was incredibly fortunate to actually have this happen and have my dream come true, but also to have found another career before this job that was also equally fulfilling. Yeah, that's so interesting. I guess I hadn't really thought about that. Like there's an added pressure when you're five years old, and you know, you want to be an astronaut. And then you had a kind of windy road to get there as a scientist before that. But here you are, and you've done a spacewalk. Um, In fact, you were on the first all woman team to do a spacewalk. And what is that like? Yeah, that is right. I was fortunate enough to do three spacewalks during my mission, and I would say that those moments are really among the highlights, especially that first one, that feeling. And that for me was something, you know, going to space, being an astronaut was always my dream. But really, the vision that I had had was how it would feel to be sort of suspended there in your own little mini spacecraft. That's essentially what a spacesuit is, looking down at the planet, just really on your own, versus when you're inside, you know, the space station with a larger volume and equipment and other people. So that was what I'd always really been dreaming about. And it is absolutely incredible. It's so difficult to put into words how that feels when you first come out of the hatch for that moment and you look down and you see nothing but you know your, your boots hanging there and nothing between them and the earth, just the void of blackness of space. It's really incredible. And you have much more of a sense of motion of the planet below you. You know, of course, we are traveling at 17,500 miles per hour. So we're going around the entire planet in 90 minutes. But when you are outside looking down, you have even more of a sense of motion than when you're inside this bigger vehicle. 
Doing a spacewalk is the most challenging thing that we do, both mentally and physically, and it's also the riskiest thing that we do as astronauts. So it demands 100% of your focus and concentration, especially that first one, making sure that you accomplish the very important job that is set out for you for that day. In our case, it was a critical repair for one of the power channels of the International Space Station. And then we had this added, this heightened kind of awareness as well, because as you mentioned, it was the first all-female spacewalk. And that was interesting for me because it wasn't something that I was thinking about in that moment. And for us, you know, when we entered the astronaut corps in 2013, Christina and I were part of a class that was 50% female and 50% male. We were all held to the same standard and all had the same training. So, you know, on one hand, it didn't really seem to make a difference to us. We're all qualified to do the job that day, just happens to be two women. But it did feel a lot different for me after the spacewalk, you know, after I had more time and, and really more brain space available to process the more philosophical component and the historical significance, I was actually shocked by how much enthusiasm and this outpouring of support from the ground. I didn't expect it. You know, people don't really tune in very often for spacewalks these days, and they're actually pretty boring to watch, pretty slow moving if you don't know what's going on. But, you know, for some reason, people were really captivated by that. And thus, you know, we really realized it was our responsibility to be that, whether it's that mentor figure or providing some kind of source of inspiration for really anybody that had a dream. When you're not in space, when you're on Earth, do you miss it? Oh, absolutely. All the time. I really wish I could be back there, you know, from the very moment I landed. And it was interesting for me, even after I was up there for 205 days, so almost seven months. And at the end of that, I still wasn't ready to come home. You know, let alone we were, of course, about to return in the middle of a pandemic. But even without that, if all things had been normal, I still wasn't ready. I still would have much rather stayed longer. And just thinking about that feeling of always being weightless, of always floating, that it just makes everything so much more fun when you can, you know, all of a sudden jump upside down and, you know, spin around and do a somersault and fly down the length of the module and just kind of turns us into our five-year-old playful selves. And I miss that so much. When you landed on Earth, did it, you know how like if you're on a boat and then you step off the boat and you kind of still feel like the movement of the boat is happening, what was the feeling when you were on land? Yeah, it's different than coming from from a boat, but you know, it is quite dramatic in terms of the fact that your body is suddenly having to contend with this gravitational force that it is not used to. I felt at home on the space station right from the moment I arrived, but coming down, you know, all of a sudden you land and you literally feel like someone is pushing you down onto your chair, onto the earth, because really there is something pushing you down and that's of course the force of gravity. But because your body is just unaccustomed to it, it does take some time to adapt. That must be incredible to actually feel gravity in the way that we all actually are, but we just don't know it. Absolutely, yeah, it's just, obviously we're all feeling it right now, but it's just your normal. (laughs) Right. So 2024, the year that astronauts would land on the moon, it's a couple years away. So in the meantime, how are you preparing? So right now, we at NASA have been preparing for these Artemis missions for several years now. We've been building the Orion spacecraft, which is the capsule that will carry us beyond low Earth orbit when we're ready to go to the moon and then beyond to Mars. 
And we're also building the Space Launch System, which is the largest rocket ever made, even bigger than the Saturn V that was used during the Apollo missions. Uh, But we are not at the point yet where we've assigned specific crews for any of the missions. Typically, for the space station, we announce those names and begin that training period about a year and a half to two years before the missions. So you can expect that to be true for the Artemis missions as well. It's a big deal to imagine the first woman landing on the moon. There are multiple women on the team. So you're saying, you know, people are going to be picked for different missions Do you care? Like, do you want to be that person who is the first one on the moon? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I think, you know, all of us want to be that first person. And of course, in reality, all of us won't. But I think, you know, I really liked how my friend and colleague Anne McLean mentioned it when we were there in Florida for that announcement. And she said, you know, we don't know who it's going to be, but the fact that we know the person, they're a colleague or even a close friend. We know those people that are going to be making those first steps. That is incredibly exciting and, and almost a bit hard to believe that you know we're at that stage where we know these people. How do you, as a female astronaut, think about this moment? We know men have walked on the moon. We know that their names, like Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, how how might it impact people to know that name of the first woman or to know that that even happened? You know, I think I feel personally about it very similarly to how I described about the involvement with the, the first all-female spacewalk. You know, at first I was kind of wondering why, why is it such a big deal? Shouldn't we be past this now? But then I realized that it is important to continue to celebrate. And of course, we are still certainly not at a point in our country where we have absolute equality, whether it's between the sexes or between other people with challenges or other minorities. You know, we still have a lot of room to grow. But I think as we continue to work toward these milestones and celebrate them to, to really pay homage to these generations of people in the past that have really pushed it, that's what really makes it more special for me. So, you know, I would look at it as I wouldn't want to be the first person just, just for me. It would be really to pay homage to these other women that came before me and to continue to celebrate them and to continue to inspire all of those in the next generation. For most of us who have never been in space and are not involved in, you know, the inner workings of these missions, why do missions like this one to the moon matter? That's a good question. And, you know, I would say that that specifically for these missions, but really for everything that we do at NASA, it comes down to, to three main things. And to me, the first one is just exploration, this innate characteristic of the human ethos to explore and to understand what's there and why it matters. Secondly, I think it's for science. You know, for me as a scientist, that's such an easy one. But basic science and scientific research in general is so vital to everything we do. If we think about the scientific wealth that still awaits us on the moon, And if you look back to the Apollo programs, we're still learning new things every day from those samples. Literally the same samples, but with new technologies, we're able to draw more and more out from that original, those original samples and significantly increase the data set. With the Artemis missions, we'll be going to different landing sites. So there are are a whole host of experiments and questions that we'll be able to answer that we weren't able to answer on those previous missions. And thirdly, Perhaps most importantly, I think if you look back to the Apollo missions, we saw this huge stimulus of resources and investment 
in the STEM fields related to trying to accomplish those Apollo mission goals. So you had a huge burgeoning of science, technology, engineering, math, all of those sectors. And that ended up having benefits and impacts that were well beyond that of space exploration to really advance our society and technology as a whole within our country and really as a planet. And you can absolutely expect that we would still have those same outcomes and benefits from the investment in the Artemis missions as well. Astronaut Jessica Meir is part of NASA's Artemis team, which plans to head to the moon in 2024. Thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. Okay, thank you very much, Morgan. It was wonderful speaking to you today. My greetings to all in New England. I hope everyone is doing well up there. The effects of climate change are being felt urgently along the shoreline. Homes, roads, and other infrastructure are increasingly in danger of being washed away. Now, planners on Cape Cod have begun quietly asking a once unthinkable question. Is it time to move inland? CAI's Eve Zukoff reports. Anytime you're selling a beachfront home in Sandwich, you're going to draw dozens of prospective buyers. So this is all private beach which people just love. That's Rich Lonstein, a realtor with Berkshire Hathaway Robert Paul Properties. He specializes in beachfront homes. And this one, four bedrooms, three baths, selling for the relative bargain of $900,000, already has several offers. A lot of houses in Sandwich, as a matter of fact, on the Cape, they don't have a dock and a beach. They're going to have one or the other, but not both. So that's what's really unique about this property. Another thing that's unique about this property? It's condemned. After high tides, erosion, and relentless coastal flooding in a February storm tore it apart. On a clear morning, just a week after the storm, this house, like several on the road, is pitched forward over the dune, surrounded by caution signs. We can't go inside, and we've got to be real careful because it is, as you can see, the wires are down as well. So you see how the foundation was compromised. Catastrophic damage from climate change threatens coastal homes all over the Cape and Islands. And over the next 30 years, new research shows that the financial losses from flood damage alone could rise to $316 million per year for Massachusetts homeowners. That's a 36% increase from today. Taken together, these coastal threats have forced an urgent question. When is it time to retreat from the shoreline? I'm not saying I have the answers because, you know, you're dealing with people's property. Dave DeCanto is a natural resources director for the town of Sandwich. He says the question of retreat is a question about other issues. You know, is it right to not allow someone to build back in an area that they've had a house for a time? I mean, all those economic, social issues have to be looked at. But there has to be a long-range plan. And I'm afraid retreat is going to have to be in, in the mix. Towns that adopt a managed retreat strategy could work with homeowners to leave their properties over the course of the next 30 years or so. Those who choose to accept would get a buyout, and their properties would be cleared to restore a natural buffer that enables coastal habitats to migrate inland as the shoreline erodes. Towns with significant coastlines are starting to look at the writing on the wall and say, we need to come up with a plan. Elise LeDuc is a scientist with the Woods Hole Group a coastal engineering firm that helps towns and homeowners evaluate their options for dealing with rising waters. The choices? Adapt, accommodate, 
and then maybe retreat. You start talking about, well, can we adapt where we've actually placed this asset? Could we relocate a roadway slightly farther inland? Could we relocate our building from the seaward end of a property to the landward end of the property? The Woods Hole Group is helping the town of Falmouth finalize a retreat plan for the Surf Drive area. And the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown is working with the four outer Cape towns to develop a joint coastal management plan. But coastal geologist Mark Borelli, who's with the center, says these projects are beset by uncomfortable conversations. One of the biggest revenue streams in any town is property tax. Well, guess which row of houses has the highest property tax in every single coastal town in the world? The ones right out of the water. So towns you know, reasonably have a very practical view of, well, oh, geez, if we let these houses go, there goes our property tax, there goes our revenue stream, there goes all the other things we want to do as a town. There's another important point when it comes to managed retreat. It's emotional. It's asking people to leave the beloved home in which they've invested not only their finances, but their dreams of the future. Still, Borelli says, we're already on a path that makes many of those homes indefensible. The worst case scenarios right now for sea level rise by the end of this century is six feet, right? Six to eight feet by 2100. That is literally, to my mind, unimaginable. That's the future that's out there, whether we're ready or not. Until then, Rich Lonstein, the realtor, is still looking for a new owner for that piece of beach in Sandwich. The teetering house was torn down in early March, but Lonstein expects a new one to go up in its place. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. The historic practice of redlining has had long-term effects on housing segregation and income inequality. Now, an innovative project is looking at the links between redlining that harmed Black and immigrant families and future vulnerability to climate change. The first Massachusetts city in the project is Haverhill in the Merrimack Valley. WBUR's Barbara Moran takes us there. The rain started just before Mother's Day in 2006, and it hit the Merrimack Valley hard. This is just the beginning of a major storm that will last right through the weekend. Look at the size of this storm now. Already more than 25 streets have been shut down like this because they're literally underwater. All the homes and businesses on these streets evacuated. Andy Vargas was a teenager at the time, living with his parents in Haverhill. I do remember my dad having to go out and buy three separate pumps uh, because our basement was completely flooded. And then we went over to my grandmother's place and her basement was, you know, almost halfway to the roof. Buying a hundred dollar pump for for families in in those neighborhoods like mine uh, can really, you know, hurt your, your monthly income. Vargas grew up in a neighborhood called The Acre. In federal maps from the 1930s, this area was shaded red or redlined. Notes describe the immigrant neighborhood as an old and run-down section, with streets among the worst in Haverhill. Banks were advised not to give mortgage loans there. Vargas, now a state representative from Haverhill, says the effects are still being felt today. When you look at the redlining maps that were created in the early 1900s, and you overlay that with the lowest income census tracts of today, they almost identically match up. And so that tells us that, you know, there are systemic uh, forces at play from, you know, 100 years ago that are still affecting the socioeconomic statuses of families today. And redlining may also be making people more vulnerable to climate change, specifically extreme heat and flooding. 
Two years ago, a nonprofit called Groundwork USA started to research this in detail. They take the old redlining maps and overlay them with data from NASA satellites and flood risk maps from FEMA. Kate Mingoya is with Groundwork USA. We got to ask this really cool question where we said, is there a relationship between historical segregation practices, and we're using redlining maps as a proxy for that, and modern day vulnerability to extreme heat and to extreme wet? Um, And we found the answer is a resounding yes. Areas that were redlined in the 1930s still generally have fewer trees and parks and more pavement and parking lots than areas that were green-lined or labeled safe for investment. And even though Haverhill has made significant effort to plant trees in redlined areas, if you click through the layers of Groundworks map for the acre neighborhood, you see big red splotches for heat risk, black smudges for pavement, and spotty patches of trees. All these factors make the people who live there vulnerable to climate change. How can you look at these maps and see the disparity and not move forward with some sort of a solution? How how can you see it and not be moved by it? Mingoya hopes the climate maps of Haverhill and nearby Lawrence will be useful teaching and planning tools. Although Lawrence wasn't historically redlined, it has hot spots and flood zones like Haverhill. Groundwork has been working in Lawrence for years, trying to prevent flooding from the Spigot River, which swamped the city during the 2006 Mother's Day floods. This little neighborhood here was probably one of the hardest hit uh, neighborhoods in in all of Lawrence. You can see that we're we're in a low spot here compared to the surrounding neighborhood. Tennis Lilly lives in Lawrence and works as a kind of tree evangelist for groundwork, selling his neighbors on the value of trees and parks. He shows off one of his favorites, Kennedy Park, which does double duty as flood prevention measure an ecological oasis. This is beautiful. This is quite green. You have this nice pond here. You'll have red-winged blackbirds nesting in here. You'll have ducks and geese. You have the beaver. There are turtles in there. The open space functions as flood storage. Back in Haverhill, State Rep Andy Vargas has his own creative solutions in mind. He'd like to see state money to help people retrofit their homes and make them climate ready so they don't have to pay extra for air conditioning and basement pumps. Some people like to separate, you know, economic problems with climate problems and say we can only do one or the other, uh, but they're inextricably tied to, to each other. Vargas says he hopes the new maps can help people see those connected problems and also opportunities to fix them. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Barbara Moran. Groundwork has also mapped the Rhode Island cities of Providence, Central Falls, and Pawtucket. They found a similar link where neighborhoods with historic housing segregation have an increased risk of flooding and extreme heat. Coming up, issues with eyewitness testimony in courtrooms and the evolving science behind it. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. In the early 2010s, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court put together a task force of people from all over the criminal justice community. They studied how eyewitness evidence is used in the courtroom and offered science-based recommendations going forward. But it left many people who were convicted before the report still in prison. 
New England Public Media's Karen Brown reports. My name is James Watson, and I was wrongly convicted for a crime I did not commit. Watson was 20 in 1979 when Boston police officers turned up to ask him questions about the murder of a cab driver named Jeffrey Boyajan. You know, look for, uh, you know, witnesses, anybody hear anything or see anything. You know, they knock on people's door, they knocked on my door, and then they stayed at my door. At the time, Watson was unemployed, a new father of an infant. He told police he knew nothing about the crime, but they said two eyewitnesses saw him get into Boyajan's cab the night he was killed. I said, give me a polygraph, you know, lie detector test, whatever. And it would come out, you focus on the wrong guy. Never happened. One witness was another cab driver named Richard Dwyer, who said he saw from across the street at least two black men get into Boyajan's cab. According to records found years later, Dwyer only picked Watson and his co-defendant out of a photo array the second time he looked at it. And that was after he was hypnotized at the police station. you will see it clear in your mind. On a recent episode of the NPR podcast Hidden Brain, actors read from a transcript of the police hypnosis in that case. the documentary begins, it will be of you sometime around 4 o'clock this morning, sitting in your cab. I am going to slow the frames down now. Uh, I, I'm scared. Scared? There's nothing to be scared of. You're just watching this. They're going to do something bad to him. I, I, they're going to do something. I just don't like them. Watson's lawyer, Barb Monroe, says back then, hypnosis was considered a legitimate way to extract evidence from a witness as though memories were hidden just under the mind's surface in perfect photographic form. I mean, we know that's not true now, but it's very riveting back then, and any jury's going to believe that and say, oh, wow. When James Watson thinks about this evidence today, well, he just shakes his head. It was bizarre to me. I don't believe in hocus pocus. And that's what that is, hocus pocus. Something you put in a movie for laughs, not for life. In addition to the hypnotized cab driver, there was a witness named Neil Sweat. He had refused to make any identification during two photo arrays until, according to court documents, the police promised to move his family out of a housing project. Like Dwyer, Sweat was white, and scientists believe cross-racial identification is more likely to be wrong. Watson's lawyer, Barb Monroe, says Sweat was also cognitively impaired. You know, you have somebody who is intellectually disabled looking out a window 75, at least 75 feet away at 4 a.m. in the morning and can identify a black man unequivocally, that is ridiculous to me. Nevertheless, in 1984, after two trials, Watson was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. He tried to stay busy there, painting, learning to hang sheetrock, so that he could fall asleep at the end of the day. But most nights he couldn't stop his mind from obsessing. Why me? You know, why'd you pick me? Of all the real bad people out there, you pick me. That question is both existential and practical. Why was he picked? Since DNA started to exonerate people, the Innocence Project has found that 70% of wrongful convictions were the result of bad eyewitness testimony. Watson had been insisting for decades the witnesses were wrong. And about five years ago, a new set of lawyers took over his case. I was just praying and hoping that, you know, this time something good happened. Before we go further into Watson's case, let's look at what happened to another man, Tommy Rosa. In 1993, when he was convicted, there were many 
things that were told to the jury that were scientifically incorrect. Radha Natarajan is head of the New England Innocence Project. She's also a lawyer for Tommy Rosa, who was 24 in 1985 when a woman named Gwendolyn Taylor was killed in Boston. Shortly before the murder, Taylor had come to a friend's door in a panicked state with a man who was threatening her. This man, the stranger, was behind her. He was holding a shiny object up to her neck. Um, It was dark. The streetlights actually were broken. The two of them left, and the next day, Taylor was found dead. Her shaken friend was asked to come to the police station and look at mugshots. You know, they didn't have any suspects in mind at the time. She said, I, you know, think it's a um, Hispanic man. And they gave her mug books. Decades later, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court warned against that kind of photo array because it invites wild guesses. Back then, Rosa's photo was among the mugshots because he'd been previously arrested for marijuana possession. The witness chose Rosa. There's all this pressure on this eyewitness to pick someone so the investigation can be completed and so that there's some feeling of justice. And this eyewitness went through these books and she picked someone who she later realized she actually um, had seen at the bus stop. And what we know now is that it's so easy for eyewitnesses to make mistakes about where they saw someone. Natarajan believes Rosa's case shows how poorly the workings of memory were understood three decades ago. Take the role of stress and trauma. The prosecutor in Rosa's case told the jury the witness was clearly traumatized by seeing her friend with a knife at her throat. He actually said it makes an, it makes an imprint in your brain, in your memory, and you will never forget. That's scientifically incorrect. Trauma actually makes it harder for the brain to create an accurate memory. Plus, there was a cross-racial identification, the viewing time was short, a weapon was present, which can make it hard for someone to focus on a face, and the prosecution claimed the witness's confidence made it likely they were right, though research shows that's not true either. Today, after a 2015 court ruling in Massachusetts, the judge must instruct the jury on these scientific principles. But that didn't help people like Tommy Rosa. So the court said... We're saying that every case going forward is going to have the benefit of this, but we're not applying this to cases going backwards. That was frustrating to people in prison who felt if the rules had been different during their trial, they wouldn't have been convicted. But Western Massachusetts prosecutor Stephen Gagney says it's unrealistic to make the rules retroactive. You know, if we judged a case from the 1950s by today's standards, I mean, I'm sure most of them would would probably not hold up very well with time. Science is always evolving. And if cases were constantly being re-examined. There's no saying how far back you could go and have cases reopened and and victims suddenly getting a phone call saying, hey, you know that case from 1978? Uh, It's been overturned. So I think the courts try to strike the right balance. The New England Innocence Project and other lawyers took on Rosa's case anyway. Decades after the murder, they tested clothing from the victim, which ruled out Rosa's DNA. Then they went through eyewitness evidence they say should have been questioned at trial. And in October 2020, after 35 years in custody, Rosa was released, at least for now. (laughs) This is awesome! How you feel, Tommy? Great. A judge allowed Rosa to leave prison while his appeal is being argued, partly because of the risk of COVID in prison. Tell us about when you found out you were going to be coming home today. She said, I have some happy news, and I got very happy. 
because sometimes you always thought this day would never happen. So let's get back to James Watson. He'd been in prison for more than three decades before Barb Monroe and Madeline Weaver Blanchett took over his appeal. Like with Tommy Rosa, they focused on eyewitness principles that have come to light since Watson was convicted, from how far away the witness was to the use of hypnosis. Today, Blanchett says, Those identifications would be subject to motions to suppress or to exclude. They would be so vigorously cross-examined. In November 2020, a judge vacated Watson's conviction. This was a few years after his co-defendant, Fred Clay, had already been exonerated. James Watson was declared free after 41 years in prison. Just to be able to walk down the street, you know, with no shackles, no cuffs, Nobody tell me, you can't go here, you can't go there. Turn right, turn left. Stand still. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Still, it's hard for him to really believe he's in the clear. Given how little evidence was needed to lock him up, he doesn't believe anyone is. Certainly not a six-foot-five black man. You know, I stick out. I was black, poor. They needed somebody to lock up for this. And they chose me. He's always on eggshells. He still half expects a visit from the police. When I hear about a crime similar or close to it, I just lock my door. You don't think that things have changed since 40 years ago? You don't think the system is any better now? No. The system is broken. It's broken. He tries not to be bitter. He'd rather focus on spending time with his son and grandchildren. But he would like to see some things change in the criminal justice system. Get more training. Do the investigation. You know, just don't go on a whim. Actually look into the case. Don't reach your hand into a hat and pull out a bunch of names. You know, do your job. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, just visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio.